Good morning. Luke 19, 1 to 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but he was short. He could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. If you're here for the first time, I'm Pastor Chris. Let's pray. God, do a work today in our hearts. Do a work today. Open our ears, open our hearts to hear from you, to be impacted by you, and let it lead to lasting change. Lasting change. Not just little aha thoughts, but aha moments that lead to transformation. In your name, Jesus, amen. Well, we are going to finish today a series that we have been in for the last nine weeks called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. This has been a focus on becoming emotionally mature as we walk with Jesus, having our emotions transformed by him, learning to process them in a healthy, in a biblical way, centered on who Jesus is is. Uh, I pray that you've been getting something out of this. Some of our life groups are, who are studying this are, have kind of fallen behind, so they are going to be finishing up over the next few weeks. But as a church, we're going to continue leaning in to these principles uh, beyond 2024. Uh, these are things that we want to lean into for the long haul as a church community. But the preaching series will end today, and the next week we begin an Advent focus. Now, what I want to do is I want to read uh, a few excerpts of um, some things that people wrote. I'll, I'll read it anonymously. Two weeks ago, I sent a, an email to our members just asking, how has this series been impacting you so far? I just want to read a few excerpts because my hope is that all of us really do have action steps that we walk away with, that we actually have new things, new rhythms, uh, new habits, new mindsets that we begin to implement into our lives. So let me just read a few things. Uh, one person said this, I have always been doing things to help people without considering the need for limits in order to replenish my own energy and having time to spend with the Lord. Simple. So my encouragement to that person would be, what are you going to do to actually have time with the Lord? Uh, somebody else said this, it has definitely helped me to realize that I have limits and sometimes I stretch them more than he wants me to. The principle on embracing our limits, by the way, seems to have really resonated uh, in a way more than others. 
Somebody else wrote this. Embracing my limits have liberated me from having to always push, try harder, do more until the point of exhaustion. Realizing God, even in my limits, will continue to guide me and as he does his part, and he will do his part regardless. And then one more I want to read. Uh, this person also wrote about limits, but then they moved on to another topic, which I'll read about. I am also interested in any message about grief. I actually went back and read Lamentations, which I think is timely given the Israel-Gaza situation. I realized that I should make time to lament because I have recognized I have latent grief. But as someone prone to depression, it makes me nervous to visit those feelings, knowing I might not be able to get out of that sadness, pain, anger. This is another topic that I'll need to revisit slash examine. So my encouragement to that person would be, yes, revisit and examine that. All of us, let's continue to lean in. Let's see, okay, this is impacting me. God's speaking to me here. Now what am I going to do about it? So that's my hope, that we would all walk away with a commitment to lean in to this. In fact, the, the title for this concluding message is this. In conclusion, repent and worship. That's the title of this finale. In conclusion, repent and worship. Um, by the way, let me just do a timeout real quick. The screen looks like that. I don't want it to be distracting anymore because it's not a screen. The screen broke. And so Jeff, Chris Walters, Kale, uh, they climbed up there and they hung like a, a, a sheet that they found in the backstage with paint marks on it. So that's why it looks the way it does. So hopefully it won't distract you any longer now that you know what it is. My daughter was like, what is that? Just wanted to answer it for you. Yeah. So... Repent and worship. All of the principles that we talked about in this series have been meant to help us repent and worship. But what does that mean? What are those words? People say them in church circles, and sometimes I think we don't actually know what they mean. We hear someone else say it, and we think, uh, worship, yeah, sing, sing songs. And it does include that. But that's not all it includes. And you might hear repent, and you might think, well, am I supposed to just feel guilty and ashamed? Is that what repent is? That's sometimes the image we get. You should repent. I'm supposed to feel like a dirty piece of crap. That's what I think it means. So no, we're going to define that before we jump into the passage that Steve just read from. Uh, let me start with worship. What is worship? Worship is not something that only religious people do. Worship is something that every human being does. I'll put it this way. Worship means to ascribe value and worth to something or someone because it is where we find our own sense of identity, meaning, worth, or fulfillment. So it could be a person. It could be a thing. It could be a hobby. It could be something we own. It could be something we hope to own in the future. I'll give you a few examples. It could be a boyfriend or girlfriend. That we elevate too high, we expect too much from them. They are the thing that has captivated our hearts. Everything in our life is revolving around keeping them happy and keeping them happy with us. Our mood rises and falls based on how their mood is. Oftentimes, new relationships, when you're teenagers, when you're young in life, you have, a, I think, a stronger temptation to elevate that person too high to where it becomes worship. Anybody? Ever been there? Another example, a job. 
you can make your job the object of your worship, either because of the money you get, because of the status you get, because of the sense of power that you get, because you're the man or you're the woman at that particular job. That's where everybody's patting you on the back. And so your life revolves around it. That becomes the thing that has captured your heart, your attention, your energy, your focus, your worries, your dreams. One more example. Everybody, most people, I know somebody who doesn't have one of these, but most people have one of these. A cell phone. These things can captivate our hearts, right? If you have trouble living without something, that is a uh, good indicator that this thing has become a little idol. A little idol that we, that this controls our life. And it might control our life because we feel like it gives us control. If you're a business owner, you might think, I cannot be away from my phone. What if somebody calls? It gives me power. It gives me access. Maybe it's, maybe it's feeling included with your social circles. I have to be able to get back to people, and they have to get back to me, and it makes you feel included. Some people hide behind a cell phone like it's alcohol. Like if you have a social anxiety, some people, when they're out with others, they hide behind the phone. They say, you know what, I'm just going to do this while everybody else is talking because I feel weird, and I don't know how to be present, so I'm just going to, I've had friends who just just doing this. And I'm like, hey, are you here with us? And I've realized it's just them hiding behind this because they feel anxious. It's a, it's a refuge. It's shelter. So those are three examples. It could be anything. It could be a hobby. It could be sports. It could be needing to be in control. It could be video games. It could be illegal things like heroin. And it could be legal things like golf. But to worship something means you ascribe worth and value to it. And the reason that it's dangerous to worship something other than God is because only God is the one who is in charge of the whole world, who is bigger than the whole world, who actually became a human and then died and then rose from the dead proving that he cannot be stopped. Everything else can be stopped. Everything else can move away, dump you, break up with you, abandon you, betray you, cheat on you, break on you, get lost, get stolen, crumble in a hurricane. And so if we put the weight of our worship into those things, we can end up devastated. That boyfriend, girlfriend could break up with you and fall in love with somebody else. And we can end up devastated if they have become the object of our worship. That job, you can end up uh, getting laid off. You can end up getting fired. You can end up uh, needing to retire. And if that is where you found your identity, your worth, your, your, your sense of um, meaning, then you're going to be spiraling out of control wondering, well, then who am I now? There's a great movie. Well, I wouldn't say the movie's great, but it's a great illustration of this, The Company Men. Ben Affleck plays this uh, high-power company guy, corporate guy, who gets laid off uh, after the bubble burst in 2008. Um, the company downsized. And he didn't know who he was anymore because he couldn't work this job. He didn't have the money that this job provided for him. And there's a scene where he goes to a golf club. He can't afford it anymore, so he doesn't have a membership anymore. But he still goes to keep up appearances. And he gets out, and somebody's like, hey, you didn't pay your dues. And his, his company buddies see him, and he feels embarrassed. He feels shame because he's been outed. But he's been trying to keep up appearances because this is who he is. And he's embarrassed to have to go work for his brother-in-law doing carpentry, played by Kevin Costner. 
It's a great example of what happens when we have made our jobs an idol and where we get our sense of identity. And even our phones. These phones kidnap us, don't they? And they actually end up stealing from our other relationships. And if you've got a social anxiety and you use your phone to hide behind it, you actually get worse in that social anxiety. Because you get used to hiding behind it, and then you really don't know how to look up and make eye contact to be present with somebody, so then you hide behind it even more. It really can be addicting like a drug, like alcohol. Social media can make you so focused on what other people have, what you're not being included in. This is why social media is so dangerous, especially for kids, especially middle schoolers. And the data says, especially middle school girls. But even beyond social media, it's just the dopamine rushes that you get by being on your phone, checking things, getting notifications, getting the dinging, doing the YouTube shorts. You can uh, make it your, 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 the thing that numbs you so that you're no longer present to God. You can't be still and know that God is God. You can be still and scroll knowing that my phone will numb my pain. And the same is true for anything else. It will let us down. It will disappoint us. And so that's why God is the only one worthy of our worship. Now, what does it mean to repent? I'm going to tie these two together. I'm going to keep this one a little shorter. Some people would say it means to do a 180. You're going this way and you do a 180, and that could mean that. Some would say that it's a change of thinking, it's a change of, of mind, it's a change of belief, and it could mean that too. I want to take it a step further and define it this way. To let go of worshiping an idol and return to worshiping the true God revealed in Jesus. So my heart was being kidnapped over here by this boyfriend girl. I'm saying, no, no, I'm going to put that person in their proper space and go back to worshiping Jesus. He's the object of my worship. Instead of making the job my end all, and this is where I get my identity. No, 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 no. I'm going to make Jesus. Instead of making my phone, instead of whatever it is, I'm going to say, no. I'm going to do a radical change and return to worshiping Jesus. Last week, I interviewed Jess Doughty about the lie she told. Remember the big lie? Repent for her didn't just mean uh, I should stop lying to this person in business. To... She had to get to the root of why did I lie? It was because I wanted this guy in business to see uh, uh, me and my husband as more successful than we are. And then maybe doors would open. Basically, she made this guy too big. God was small. This person, even for a moment, became an object of worship in a sense. He's got all the power. He's in control. So if I lie, maybe I'll get in with him. So for her, repent needed to include telling this big guy, hey, I lied to you because it was a way of declaring, you're not that important. You're small. You don't have control over my success. God does. And by outing myself, I'm putting you in your proper space. You're a small guy. Right? So that's a picture of repentance. Now, I'm going to tie them together. We're going to see these themes work out in this passage that Steve just read from in the story of Zacchaeus. So let's get back into it. This is Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. Let's get going. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Chief tax collector... Wealthy. So he made a lot of money doing his tax collecting business. Um, tax collectors, from what I understand about them in the first century, they were kind of like a combination of an IRS agent and a mobster. Because they were 
corrupt. They were shady. They were working for the oppressive Roman government, helping the Romans oppress their own people and making extra money doing it. The Romans were oppressing. They said, well, we, we have to tax you guys to fund the army that's needed to continue to oppress you guys, but we need somebody to collect the taxes. And Zacchaeus, being a Jew, said, hey, I'll help collect taxes on my own people. And then he could skim off the top. He could overcharge them. Picture if a communist you know, regime took over brick and was like saying, hey, you guys can meet in the school, but you have to pay the religious tax. But we have to collect the religious tax. Anybody want to help? And I said, I'll help collect the tax. And so at the door, I'm like, hey, uh, you, know, you, you, you owe them 100 bucks, but it's really 75 that they're charging you. So I pocket the other 25. And I do that to all of you. And you all know that, that, that that's what I do. You would be, feel betrayed. You would be angry. You would feel like I've, I've lost my faith. Right? That's how people saw Zacchaeus. And he was willing to do that in order to get the wealth that he had because I would um, guess that wealth, power, money, in some form or fashion had become an idol for him. That's what he worshipped. That's where he got his sense of being somebody. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. But he wanted to see who Jesus was. He wanted to see who Jesus was. Because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So little guy. He runs ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now, I am not going to recommend you watch this show. But if you have seen The Sopranos, picture Tony Soprano climbing a fig tree to see somebody. Like Jesus. Ooh, ooh, Jesus is coming. He's climbing. Can you picture that? That's not something a kid would do. It's undignified. So there's something going on in Zacchaeus' heart in this moment. He's like, this wealth, this power, this money that I have isn't doing it for me. I hear about this guy, Jesus. I want to see him. And he's climbing a tree to see him. Right? It's something a kid would do. Jesus... Let's keep going. Verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Remember, a big crowd. Zacchaeus can't see over the crowd. Big crowd around. Jesus stops and looks up at the tree. Sees Zacchaeus and says, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Man, this is, I think this is really pow powerful. Jesus doesn't say to him, hey, I'd like to spend time with you, you, but you better clean up your life first. You better make things right and give some money back and stop doing what you're doing. He doesn't say that. He says, hey, I want to spend time with you. I want to spend time with you. And that's what he says to all of us. When our hearts are captivated and kidnapped by something else and we're too caught up in this and we're too caught up in this, Jesus saying, hey, I want to spend time with you. I want to spend time with you. I want to spend time with you. And the question is, are we going to say, yeah, I'll spend time with you, Jesus? Zacchaeus did. Because he knew something was going on in his heart. He knew there was a longing. He knew there was a hunger that was not being satisfied by the thing that he was currently worshiping. Let's keep going. Verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. All the people, whoever those people are that are muttering this, are caught up 
by a religious spirit. Jesus, this rabbi, is going to be the guest of a notorious sinner, of Tony Soprano. What's he doing? They don't understand worship. A lot of times, it's the religious folks who don't understand worship. What they're really worshiping, what they have made an idol out of, is their own performance. I'm doing the good things. I'm checking the boxes, so I'm on top. And someone like Zacchaeus, who's doing the immoral, corrupt things, are on the bottom. And if Jesus spends time with the guy on the bottom, then it threatens my system. Because they don't understand worship. It's not about God. It's not about Jesus. It's, it's about what they're doing. And they're upset by what Jesus is doing, welcoming Zacchaeus into his life. To share a meal together was a sign of welcoming, of hospitality, of acceptance. And they're like, we don't understand this. Verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord. So this is during the dinner at some point. We don't know what's transpired. We don't know what they've talked about. We don't know what Jesus has said to him. But Zacchaeus stands up and says, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. This is a radical shift. Any commentator I've read, nobody has, has said that this was a figure of speech. The Mosaic law required you to pay back a fifth 